Thank you so much for listening to Art Heals All Wounds today. Before we get to today's show, I'd like to recommend a podcast I've been enjoying. It's called Discover More, hosted by Benoit Kim. Benoit is a policymaker turned psychedelic assisted psychotherapist who aims to highlight the magical relationship between healing and the best possible human experience. Some of his recent episodes feature topics such as why spirituality is a marketplace, the psychedelic renaissance and sexual trauma healing, and how art is the masterclass of life. Tune in to discover more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and all your favorite listening apps. Do you want to change the world? So do I. On this show, we meet artists whose work is doing just that. Welcome to Art Heals All Wounds. I'm your host, Pam Uzel. We're continuing with the Agents of Belonging miniseries with this episode. The guest on today's episode reminded me of a story that someone told me a long time ago when I was an undergrad. A friend went out for a jog early one morning. This man was a very talented actor, very smart, and incredibly well-liked. He knew everybody. When he walked across campus, there would be constant calling out, Hey, how you doing? Just an incredible human being. For him, being out in the early morning to run like this was kind of magical. You know, the sun's not totally up yet, so it's still nice and cool, and the birds are starting to wake up and chirp. He was about 20 feet out from a parked car when he heard that clunk. A white woman sitting in the parked car had quickly locked her car doors when she noticed him approaching. He stopped, and then he started laughing in a way that makes you grab your stomach and bend over because that's how hard those laughs are coming out. When he told me this story, I said, why did you laugh? And he said, because I had to. It was either stop and laugh or carry that shit with me the rest of my day. I often wondered how I would have felt if that had happened to me. I think it's good to wonder how things like that feel. After talking with my guest today, I also know that to wonder how something like that feels rather than to know is a really privileged perspective of the world. It's the privilege of being white in a system based on white supremacy. My friend who told me this story is black. He didn't need to be told how that feels. It doesn't matter if you're smart, talented, well-liked. When you're a black, indigenous, person of color, you're constantly bombarded with actions that erase all of who you are. And when you're white, you act out your privilege in ways that, whether you realize it or not, are causing harm. My guests on today's episode are Kai Hazelwood and Sarah Ashkin. Kai and Sarah are body-based artists and activists. Together, they are Practice Progress, doing anti-racist work that addresses structural, professional, and interpersonal white supremacy through body-based learning. I read about Kai and Sarah's work, and I thought, how do they do this? 
And then a really quiet voice inside me said, have I learned these body-based white supremacist actions? Well, not to keep you in suspense, but yes, I have. Of course I have. If you live in a society based on white supremacy, you've been on one side or the other of these actions. Through practice progress, Kai and Sarah start with the body and help those they work with who identify as white to slow down, listen, and build awareness of what they've learned to ignore about their place in our society. And to BIPOC participants, they support them in ways to rest and relinquish this burden of carrying this harm. Thank you so much for listening to the Agents of Belonging miniseries. If you like what you're hearing, please follow Art Heals All Wounds on your favorite listening app. And I really won't mind if you share us with a friend. Today, we're talking with Kai Hazelwood and Sarah Ashkin of Practice Progress. Kai Hazelwood is a queer African-American cis woman who spent much of her formative years in the ballet world at institutions like the San Francisco Ballet School, Dance Theater of Harlem, Alvin Ailey, and the Kirov Ballet in St. Petersburg, Russia. Kai's lived experience has made finding, understanding, and purging how white supremacy lives in the body a very personal mission. She now works as a dedicated dance educator, event producer, and public speaker, raising the profile of bi-plus queer and BIPOC community issues through art projects, events, and public speaking. Sarah Ashkin is a choreographer, educator, and curator using dance as a tool for embodied political intervention. She understands the performance-making process as a feminist, anti-capitalist, anti-racist practice that emerges from collaborative content creation and community engagement. As a dance educator and body-based artist, she positions embodied expression as a tool to dismantle and rebuild our world for the better. You may remember her name from the previous episode with Brittany Delaney as one of the founders of the Dance and Social Justice Collective Ground Series. Kai and Sarah have come together as body-based artists and activists to do anti-racist work that focuses on the body. What do bodies learn and what do bodies carry in a society based on white supremacy? And what are the different needs for white participants in their workshops and BIPOC participants? I'm so glad that Kai and Sarah are on the show to talk about their work. Hi, Kai and Sarah. Welcome to Art Heals All Wounds. Can we start by having you introduce yourselves, telling us who you are and what you do? Kai, will you go first? (laughs) Sure, I will go first. So my name is Kai Hazelwood. My pronouns are she, her, and I actually like to introduce my dear partner in mischief-making and anti-racist work, anti-racisting, to quote her, Sarah Ashkin. And I like to introduce her by sharing how we met each other and then also some of what I admire and love about her. All right. Sarah and I met at a contact improv jam where we had been doing that thing. If you've ever been to a contact improv jam, it's just sort of a 
free floating movement time where people dance together or dance separately. You take a break whenever you want. And we've been doing that thing that sometimes happens where you notice someone who's having really lovely dances and you just kind of make eye contact and you smile a little bit. So we were doing that. And Sarah was dancing with a dear friend of mine, and I saw something go awry, as often happens in contact improv, and she landed smack on her face. And so she came over to the side, and I was like, hey, that was like a pretty good impact, or are you doing okay? And in true Sarah fashion, she was like, yeah, I think I'm fine. And then meanwhile, there's a shiner starting to bloom on her face. And I went, you know, maybe let's just attend to your body a little bit. And I called the person that she'd been dancing with over, who also happens to be a wonderful body worker. And I was like, hey, you were part of that thing that went awry. You should give some attention to this body that took the impact. And so this friend sat down and started working on Sarah. And we started talking. And uh, very shortly thereafter, I invited her to come to a sort of open movement time that I hosted on Sundays called Sunday Funday. And I was like, hope to see you there. Fully expecting that she wouldn't show up. This is Los Angeles. People say, yeah, totally all the time. Then you never hear from them again. And she showed up on Sunday. And that was six years ago, at least six years ago. And since then, we have danced together, performed together, been advisors and dramaturges in each other's work. We launched this business together. And Sarah is one of very few white people (laughs) that I completely trust. And I also admire and I respect and I love the collaboration that we've built together the friendship that we've built together, the deep love that's between us. And I couldn't imagine doing the work that we do. And I wouldn't want to do the work that we do with anybody else. And I also admire her as an artist just tremendously. So I get to be like a fangirl and talk about how brilliant and talented and skilled and paradigm shifting her work is too, which, you know, it's great to have brilliant friends. (laughs) That was a beautiful introduction of Sarah. Thank you. So, Sarah, do you have an introduction for Kai? I sure do. I love this practice. I love this practice. I think what it does is it like we're not little vacuum island beings, right? Like we we are in this room together because of our connection to each other. Shout out to Brittany Delaney, the previous episode who recommended us to be here. (laughs) Hi, Brittany. (laughs) So, and I just love introducing Kai. It's like a huge honor in my life to have proximity to her being. Yes. So Kai and I met at this contact jam and I'd fallen and you've heard the story, but what's what, from my perspective to have this really, I'd really admired Kai dancing, right? This is what she's explaining. Come and sidle over to me and like already wrap me in care and in community and in seeing the need, right? Kai is like a material activist. She sees the needs in the world and addresses them. It's not happening on an intellectual or abstract plane. Her care happens really tangibly. I'm squeezing my hands and opening them. So that I was wrapped in that in our first moment and continue to be wrapped in it. 
yeah, like I say, is such a gift, is such a gift. I, yeah, what do I admire about Kai? Whoa, it's a long list. Kai is, and I know we're going to, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but Kai is those once in a lifetime teachers. Her pedagogy, her educational care takes the risks that dance education, arts education, higher ed education, nonprofit education puts students oftentimes at the bottom rung of the ladder. And more oftentimes it's about money or it's about prestige for the teacher. Or it's about whatever, teaching the exact thing that you know how to do so that you can be an expert. And, you know, this comes in so deeply into our work as facilitators for practice progress. But Kai's educational modality, it really is revolutionary. She's the person, I'll quote her, she says, I loved, like, thank you for inviting me into your fancy higher education space. My job here is to fuck it up. My job here is to throw a wrench in, right, and shake you up. And she does that at risk, right? And then what ends up happening is that young people, people who are in our facilitations, her colleagues, me, are inspired to actually build the world that we need. And believing that education is a place where, like, care, healing, community happen. So I know that's a long-winded piece about a very particular part, but Kai, you are the teacher I hope to be. See, why would you ever introduce yourself (laughs) when someone says why would you ever do that? I love you. I love you too. (laughs) Those were amazing. Before we go on, I just want to say I love that website that you put together. There is such clarity there around what you're doing, why you're doing it, not necessarily how, if you haven't done a lot of body work, which I haven't, which is what we're going to talk about. But it just was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is what's happening. And I loved it. I loved the language of that, of your description of yourselves and what you do. It was just so right to the point and so eloquently said, but not obscuring anything. Oh, that's beautiful to hear. That was our goal. It was very hard to figure out how do we just use plain old speak to talk about this thing that is so deep in our bodies and so felt. But if we don't say it plainly, then that we're actually not doing part of our job. So it's really lovely to hear that that came through. Right. Well, the main thing I want people to know is that you're both dancers and choreographers, but you do a lot of, and I'm going to read this, the term that jumped out at me because I was not really familiar with it is body-based artists and activists. And I would love to hear more about that. What does that mean? And then also this idea of embodied learning. So maybe we'll go to the first one. When you describe yourself as a body-based artist and activist instead of, I'm a dancer, I'm a choreographer, what's the differentiation there? Kaya, I think you should go first because you've written an article called Why I Broke Up With Dance. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The article Sarah's referencing, I wrote for the Give Me Imagining Journal. It was edited by Ava Yasin. Yasin Twa, I always want to say her name wrong, who is someone 
I fiercely look up to and admire as a mover through the world. But the title is, I'm breaking up with dance. I can't heal in the same relationship that hurt me. And I think that title sums up for me, I won't speak for Sarah, why I use that term. I was a dancer. I started when I was four years old. It is all I knew. And I kept getting hurt and I kept getting sick. And it wasn't until I shifted my relationship to this thing called dance that it started to feel right. I think as a black dancer who's nearly six feet tall, who's hypermobile, there are all these ways in which capital D dance was not made to include me. And so I was contorting myself in so many ways that were harmful to me personally to fit in that world. And what I have come to learn that I need is something else entirely. And I'm constantly discovering and rediscovering and navigating what that thing is. But what I know is that when I use the language dance now, it makes my shoulders tense and it just doesn't sit right in me because I need to move away from and no longer hold myself to the standards of that world. But I am still a mover. All of my work passes through my body, whether I'm writing, whether I'm teaching, the art I make all stems from the body. So I like the term body-based because it acknowledges that that's still the center of my practice. It just doesn't look the way that it used to. So I need new words. And I combine activist with that. It's really, I'll be blunt, it's a selfish term for me. It's to remind me that that reclamation of what movement means is revolutionary and it is activism and it is critical for my own survival and thrival. So it starts for me as this embodied in my own, shifting my own relationship to my body. And then because I know that my lived experience in dance in a body is not unique, it's the same way that I think about the offerings that I put out into the world and invite other people into. So that's my, that's my answer on why I use those two words together. Sarah, we'll pass over to you. Thanks, Kai. <laughs> I think for me, I just make weird political performance art now. <laughs> so whenever <laughs> I call up the lineage of dance, I think people often are disappointed. Because I just don't, like Kai says, it's like deeply living in my body, the work. And what I love, what I feel like so inspired by is that my dance training, which was also a somatics training, and that word somatics is, describes a field, a modality of often body-based learning that works to repattern the body, mind, and spirit so that they're all talking to each other. This is ancient, ancient practice, but it was coined by some white guys in the 70s as a term, somatics. So I was a beneficiary of that learning, and I remember being a 20-something and learning to hold someone's head in my hands, and I was at this fancy university and I was being told that the value system here is that 
I learned to hold the head in my hands. And I couldn't directly relate it to dance, but capital D dance, which for both Kai and I is Western concert dance. We both trained in ballet. For me, also modern and jazz, uh, lyrical. Who knows what that is? So I came into like my training in my 20s with this real background on what exactly dance was and that it was very linear progress. Um, you were, You gained technique and climbed the ladder. And suddenly the technique I was learning was to hold a head in my hands. And I was being told that this would, and I actually knew that it would support me in listening to my partner when we were like throwing each other across the stage, right? Like that I could bring my attention and care this way, could scale. And, and um, so I think for me, those are the two main pieces I feel um, I've started to feel pretty out of place in the capital D dance world. And it's too bad because that's like a, it's a very old conversation around what is dance and why do the disciplines have to live so separately. But body-based feels great. Body-based feels true. Activist. Do I identify as an activist? I I feel, I like organizer. I see meal making, childcare, phone, tree, dance rehearsal, you know, what we do with Practice Progress now, we've like, I've, I've engaged hundreds of white people in anti-racist body-based work. I'm organizing them. I really am. We are. Kai, you know, like, it's cool. It's happening. <laughs> so I also really appreciate the reframe and the invitation and Kai and I say this a lot in our, we give a talk called anti-racist dramaturgy. And we say art making is an opportunity for multi-purpose political organizing. So that feels really real. Wow. Okay. Both of those answers were really, really amazing and enlightening to me. But now let's talk about embodied learning. Was that included in that answer? Because it feels a little bit different and it feels like it kind of leads to the workshops that you both do. So embodied learning, are we all doing that all the time or is that something specialized or what is that? Sarah, why don't you take this one first? I will, I will. I'll take this one first also because um, I practice talking about it as a doctoral candidate as a PhD student in performance studies, right? Like what is, especially for Kai and I, this question of what is embodied learning around racialization and anti-racisting, right? Like how is our body actually um, through our posture, through our tension, through our space, the space we put between bodies, through our heartbeat, and nervous system activation or sweat through our automatic gestures. Uh, one of my favorite thinkers on embodied learning and race is George Yancey. And he talks all about the elevator effect, he calls it, where the white woman takes her four inches away, her body becomes tense and she grabs her purse. Right. And so Yancey talks about all of that embodied practice. Uh, that's happening in the white woman, but he also talks about how his body as a black man entering the elevator 
his body is taken from him. He no longer gets to be the person who makes a conversation with that person and they decide together who each other are. But the second he walks in the elevator, his body, his life is taken from him and a monster is replaced. So thanks, George Yancey, for teaching me so much. But that's all, that's a long example, an important example to just name that how Kai and I talk about this, which is that white supremacy is an experience that all people living in a white supremacist culture embody, but we do it in really different ways, depending on what our training has been, what our practice has been, what the repetitions have been, what's been modeled for our bodies, those bodies that look like us, how much safety I feel to open my shoulders and open my heart when I walk into a public space that's embodied training. So when Kai and I say that we work specifically with body-based learning around anti-racism, we're, we're saying this is a critical site of race and racism, the body. And if we do all of our learning or quote-unquote unlearning just in our minds by sitting and talking or looking at a PowerPoint or filling out a worksheet, particularly the health outcomes, particularly for black and brown people, are not being addressed. We know that, right, um, Dr. William Smith has created a term called racial battle fatigue, which describes what it's like to have thousands of mini injuries. Mini isn't even right, right? That term microaggression, they're just aggressions all day long in uh, predominantly white spaces, has direct impact on mental health, direct impact on heart disease, direct impact on hypertension. Days of life are eliminated just through the ways that folks are living with racism in their bodies. And, you know, we can extrapolate that as white people. We, like, don't talk and think about the ways that racism is impacting our health, but it absolutely is, right? If we are moving through the world where we have to not see or feel so that we can continue to power through with our meeting um, when racism has happened in the elevator and we've just um, recast a human being as a monster because they walked into the elevator. Yeah, humanity is absolutely being degraded in the white body as well. So, Kai, please t- say more. But that's to me a lot about what we do. So many things going through my mind. I'm just pausing and dropping in for a second here. My perspective on why embodied learning embodied knowledge is critical is because to put it totally bluntly i refuse to have one fucking second taken off of my life because of white supremacy and i recognize that it is all the time putting pressure on me oppression takes a daily moment to moment toll i sometimes use the example of even being in this conversation 
for white people, it can be intellectual, it can be interesting and educating. For me, there's a different degree of energy that's involved in talking about this and thinking about this and feeling about this. And so my work, my approach to embodied learning is about tuning in and helping other people tune in to feel that toll because we're so conditioned to normalize it. I didn't even know it was fucking happening most of my life. And when I stop and I drop in and I feel the way that those aggressions hit me, when I look back at my life and I feel into the ways that I have been harmed and contorted and had my energy drained dealing with these things, it's impossible for me to ignore that they take a toll on my physiological health. And so my work, my resistance work, my liberation is about noticing that the toll that these things take on my body and resourcing myself and my community as much as possible so that we no longer lose even one goddamn second from our lives because of, and there's no better term, this fuck shit that we live through all the time. So for me, this is about survival. This is about lifespan. This is about medical disparities. This is about my own health. This is about looking at my father who died at 62, my grandfather who died even younger, my other grandfather who I never even met because he died before I was born, my grandmother who had mental health issues that were never treated and just let herself die. It's about recognizing that those outcomes are actually tied to the physiological, the embodied experience of oppression and going no fucking more. Not for me, not for other people in my community, not for my elders, not for the people coming behind me, no fucking more. So that's what it means to me. And part of that is as small as noticing in this moment in this conversation that there's fire coming up in my body about this and going like, this is not a neutral intellectual conversation. This is not even about, oh, I learned something interesting. This is about fucking survival. And if we don't address it on that level, then we are not acknowledging, we are not feeling the basic, the most concrete ways that these things impact people's lives, my life. And that's actually what matters to me. If I'm totally frank, I care infinitely less about white people learning and I care incredibly more about people of color living longer and having better health outcomes. And so that's what I'm after. I recognize that part of that outcome can be supported by white people's learning. So I'm invested on that level, but that's it. That's my feeling a little fire in my belly answer. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that because that was very important to hear. Thank you. Yeah, well, I do still wanna hear though, about your workshops, because now I want to know what is the approach for doing this. I've I, there there are two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the workshops in general, and then I know you have another workshop coming up that I also want to make sure people hear about. So, when you have these workshops, I know that there are different groups for people of color and for white people. And I would love to hear 
the work that you do to help people become aware of what's happening in their bodies around white supremacy. So, sure. who wants, who wants to start? To start? <laughs> Are we taking turns? Is that what's happening? You don't have to, but it's I'm up joking. to you guys. Hi, I'm open to you starting or whatever. Yeah, kick kick wherever you want. But I, I think what I I will say is just like what Kai just shared. That's what we do in the workshops. Mm. You know, like that's why it's not a PowerPoint or a worksheet, and that's why we don't all work together. So I think you know. Uh, maybe I'll speak to that, right? And and Kai and I actually modeled it just now, right? I got to talk about the reading that I've done. I got to talk about the relationships that I've had with Black leaders, mostly Black women in dance, who have said, Sarah, go organize white people. But the share from me is not about how my survival is at risk in the world that I live in. The share for me is about how I am like learning to plug myself in to understand how absolutely my survival is, but I've been taught not to think of it that way. I, I want to call in like just that the, for, well, the question is, how do we do it? So maybe, okay, slow, slow down, but. Well, you can address that however it makes sense in what you do. Okay. Well, I do want to explain, explain what we do clearly as well. This question back to like, what is embodied learning? Kai and I are trying to like hack out all of the pedagogical tools, toys that we have from dance, that we have from somatics, that we have from body-based healing practices and apply them and wonder about them in this thing that we call anti-racisting. So that happens twofold. That happens in our work as artists. We're asking dance, quote unquote, to show up to the plate and say, like, here's this whole community, this whole tradition of learning. Here's money. Here's like modalities for like how to interact with another person, right? Dance is incredible about creating relationship and trust. That's like one of the things that it works on. And we're saying, add race, right? Because so much of at least my dance education was not about understanding what it was for me as a white, skinny, able-bodied, highly educated person to be moving and what it meant for that person to be in relationship with another person and another person. I got to be quote unquote neutral. I could be, I could be the wind. I could be a leaf. I could be a fairy. That is not how um, funding structures or casting structures traditionally have worked in dance for dancers. I mean, I got to be a tree a lot, so there's that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And a man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so to, to invite the body not to be neutral invite is not the word, to really shake the body, the white body, out of this myth of neutrality and to use dance learning to 
learn more about anti-racism learning. So I wanted to share that little piece. Okay, so Kai and I work in, uh, so our, our business is called Practice Progress. And Practice Progress leads facilitation series. We try and never do just one. We try and do more than one workshop. Primarily, those workshops happen in race-based affinity groups. So we, I lead a group that identifies as folks who benefit from white privilege. A cop pulls over their car. They roll down the window. And what happens in a moment when they are seen, right? What happens in a moment when whiteness is what meets the cop's eyes, so we invite those people to come be in what we call the white working group. And I work with them. And as Kai likes to show, she puts her hands um, in one above, one below, and says, white people have a learning gap to close, right? This thing that we're talking about of resensitizing awareness that race and racism is a reality in their bodies, in our lives, and absolutely in our relationships with people of color and that the harm is happening right now. So that's what we mostly work on. And I can talk more about what that exactly is, like what we do in our embodied practice. And then Kai, will you share about what happens or how we delineate the BIPOC circle? Yeah, so usually before we break into groups, I usually say something along the lines of we fully recognize that this is a very binary choice in a not binary world. It does not take into account immigration, language, culture, all different kinds of things. However, there are ways in which our world does function on this very clear binary. And that is why we divide the groups in this way. Very often we encounter things where some people go, I don't know what group to go to, or I don't identify as white for these reasons. And that's why we boil it down to this very simple question of, do you walk through the world carrying white privilege or no? Because that point radically alters the way you are perceived and the way you experience life. So it's not to erase all those other complexities about who you are, your identity, where you're from, all of that. We are fully acknowledging we are not addressing most of those things. <laughs> but what we are attending to is this very different way of being experienced and experiencing the world. And that's the work that we do. And that's why the groups are broken up the way that they do. So if white folks have a knowledge gap to close, BIPOC, BIPOC, people of color, none of these terms are perfect, but I'm using them interchangeably to describe the circle that I hold. And what we do is recognize our rest and our care gap, the ways in which we are normalized to overwork, to overgive, to be over-responsible. And we play with resting. One of the sessions is a guided nap. Sometimes people fall asleep. Sometimes they just feel blissed out at the end. Sometimes they just realize how stressed out they actually are. But it's a time and a space that's just about what does it mean to feel some embodied rest, 
Patricia Hershey of the NAP ministry is a guiding example of this work of how revolutionary and how important rest is. And her work on social media and her book, Rest is Resistance, are absolutely places and lessons that I learned from how revolutionary rest actually can be, and not can be, is for Black black and brown bodies. We also do purging, which is just like, let's get this racist harms that we've experienced out of our bodies in knowing company. So it's really about purging shit out so that we have the space and the capacity to rest. And then we can work together as community to help each other prioritize our own rest and care through boundaries, through nap times, through whatever it is in our lives so that the work, the practice, the play doesn't end when the workshop series is over. So community building, resting, purging, boundary setting, all of that delicious stuff. But the goal, I think, on the other side of each circle that I hold is that people leave feeling lighter, feeling like their nervous systems have settled, and that they were in a circle of folks who really affirmed them. Because for those of us that work in predominantly white spaces quite a bit, that is very often not our experience. And we deserve to be affirmed. So we do that too. I will just share that um, of the dozens and dozens and dozens of BIPOC circles that Kai has held, like 85% of them continue to meet after our time, after Kai's leadership. So it just speaks to, yeah, the truth of the desire to build community and longevity, like it's really happening. So again, I'll just toot our horn. That's hundreds of people who are in continued care with each other. Yeah, I actually was just wondering that when you were speaking, Kai, because, I mean, this does sound like a practice. It's not a quick fix. You go to this workshop because the things that the um, BIPOC circle are experiencing, they're so ongoing. So it sounds like you're helping people to develop both community and this practice of care. That's the goal. But I think more than me helping folks, I think the real, not I think, the real place that I'm coming from is we actually know how to take care of ourselves and each other. We're just not encouraged to do Mm -hmm. it. And there's very rarely time or space. So the idea is that I'm happy to hold some space for us to practice, to play with. I like the term play a lot because it reminds me to lower the stakes for myself, to play with what we already know how to do. Because I'm not an expert. We're every person I encounter in the circles that I hold are experts because we're all still fucking alive in a white supremacist wor- world. So we have learned some badass strategies that have kept us alive. So I don't feel so much like my job is to show up as a teacher. My job is to show up in community and go, how have we all survived? What do we know? What is still serving us that we want to carry on? And what isn't that we want to let go and maybe learn something new from somebody else? That's really my position. I'm not really interested in being an expert. I'm interested in facilitating folks recognizing their own brilliance. Right. 
So, Sarah, when you are working with the white group in these communities, what is it that you're doing within with that group? Um, first, we're moving money. As much as, you know, sometimes we're hired by organizations and then the monetary load actually comes on to me, to Kai and I are not a 50-50 organization. Kai is doing this work consensually, but um, as she shared earlier, it is not a neutral intellectual conversation. So um, yeah, I am a 45% and Kai is a 55%. I make a I try to make a monthly, it ends up being more like every two or three months donation to the local spaces where we are being hired. So I am learning about BIPOC-led racial justice initiatives in all the places that we work, and I'm moving my money there. But when we work in individuals are all buying in to a workshop and they don't know each other, right? They're called our public programs. Those white folks are paying for all of the BIPOC participant fees. And that's because that's how it should be. (laughs) Uh, So that is our first move, is that the economic piece is not a stop sign for Black, Indigenous folks to be a part of this work. Okay. Okay. So then the white people are all in the room together. And this might be the first time that they've acknowledged that they're in a room with just white people, even though it probably happened four times earlier that day. (laughs) So (laughs) we talk about what is a white working group. Um, I am so lucky to have had mentorship. Well, I've had a lot of mentorship, but particularly I'm thinking about the folks who organize in Los Angeles. the White People for Black Lives initiative, which is a res- like a response arm under Black Lives Matter. So something they say is that historically it's dangerous for white people to get together alone. It's a dangerous move. Dangerous things happen. So what is our care, our responsibility, our intention, and our impact in getting together? And one move is that it's deeply important that these quote-unquote anti-racist trainings or anti-bias trainings for Kai and I are not happening in multiracial space for the most part because what ends up happening is that perhaps a white person is coming to their first confrontation with understanding and the like very hard feelings that they are complicit in white supremacy. And they might cry, they might scream, they might get defensive, they might walk out. And in um, multiracial space, that often is put onto the labor of the black and brown colleagues in this training to, you know, soothe, support, make racism smaller. And uh, that's, that's more harm happening. That is reinforcing the thing that your training supposedly is fighting against. So we, uh, I make, I'm, I hold space for messy, messy times for white people to have, we call it being activated. 
And I don't separate myself, right? I also am someone who has unfinished feelings that um, being in a white working group provides a container where we can actually do that emotional labor for each other instead of asking BAPOC to do it. So that's something that's really important. And then the other thing that, you know, Kai and I, as we were trying to understand what the structure of our organization would be, um, surprise, surprise, 2020 happened. You searched like anti-racism and dance. And Kai and I had a lot of really well-intentioned white, mostly women, dance people say, we need, like my all-white faculty needs training right now. And Kai and I were like, well, I don't think we do that. You know, Kai was just like, we're not here to only offer education to white people. Um, we, we talk about how like book groups with your white friends reading Robin DeAngelo, who's a white author, White Fragility, um, is actually a white working group that is not in any accountability, any relationality, any trust building with the harm and the real relationships with Black, Indigenous people of color. So there is no white working group that happens without a BAPOC circle happening. They are always tangential. They don't always happen at the exact same hour of the day, but when we're working in an organization or we're doing a public programming, yeah, as Kai says, all the resources cannot go to white people. So that's, I give that spiel every single time. Kai, I don't know if you know that, but I, every time at the beginning of the white working group, I do this whole thing. <laughs> And it's really important. It's really important to just frame what it is that we're going to be up to. And what we're up to is, for the most part, slowing down. I would say my two embodied learnings that are maybe three that I'm asking folks to practice is getting slow. I can say a lot about that, but maybe I won't right now. Getting slow. Training, practicing, getting slow. Um, listening as a full body, even more than body experience that our whole world is giving us information about how we might respond, how we might listen, how we might integrate information. And because uh, we've been trained to desensitize to that information, particularly my... Um, that's a great, a good example. Oh, I'm where it's my syllabus day at the first day of my class, and we're looking through the syllabus together. And I notice, I don't notice, I don't notice that my black students have stopped participating in the conversation. It might take me two years to learn. That's because there are no black people on my syllabus, and they're going, "Oh shit, I got into another class where I'm no, I'm not considered." So me as a white educator, I never went to a training except for Kai and I lead one where I was asked as a, as a white teacher to consider who was on my syllabus and how, how that would implicate and impact my students and impact me as a, as a human being on the planet who's only 
thinking about the world from a European white lens. Okay, so that's just a little example. So listening, 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 slowing down, listening, and then trust. What is embodied rupture and repair feel like? How can I move slow enough and listen enough so that instead of being in a transactional relationship, oh, my organization like needs a diversity hire. What if it was like, oh, I just found out that person's favorite food and we both like the same food. I'm gonna bring a food. They still might not talk to me. That has to be okay. Yeah, trust, 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 trust as a long-term human project that is felt, is embodied. So th- that's what we work on in the way we're, I'm just, we do all these other stuff, but that's, that's a lot of what we do. <laughs> yeah, this is really kind of amazing to think about these two different spaces, but how each one of those activities is so necessary for each space. Well, I could tell a story of diversity trainings at my school, but I I won't. (laughs) (laughs) I bet we could guess how it went. (laughs) Well, it's exactly what you're describing in that there's one person who has to deal with all of the feelings of people who are like, but that's not true, but what do I do? How... You're trying to tell me that I shouldn't say that, that I, you know, and I remember just thinking like, that must be so exhausting, you know, that you have to actually answer back in a very polite tone some of these responses. What a heavy, heavy rock to push uphill. And it's our rock. This is Sarah speaking. It's white people's rock. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. I feel like uh, when I hear that story, I'm out here trying to make sure that my life is as long as it could be. I'm supposed to burn my precious life juices pushing that fucking rock. This is Kai speaking, if that wasn't obvious. (laughs) No fucking way I'm not pushing that rock. Have your feelings. Everyone needs to work through their own stuff. But I am not pushing that rock. I'm out here trying to lengthen my life and everyone else's life. It's no. Well, the invitation too is that we believe, right? That the white folks, it's our job to believe and feel that it's happening. And know, and like practice feeling and knowing that racism is happening in our meeting, in our training, you know, on our sidewalk, in our relationship. And you know, just like the toxic politeness is being trained to that person in your faculty meeting to deliver caring words that shorten their life with a tone of grace. The white folks are getting, and that's embodied is I think what Kai and I are trying to say, like that lilt in the voice, that's like a practice. And the person who's, compl- who's ha- being like, it's right for me to take up this space in this room. It's mine to have is an embodied practice. So that's why we, I mean, and again, thank you dance because Kai and I did maybe 2 million tondus, which is like a little foot brush in our lives. And we know about practice. And so we're saying, and we actually wish we didn't do that many tondus and now we need to practice something else. (laughs) That's (laughs) 
<laughs> so, but we're saying, you know, this, we know over time that we can learn to do and be like actually pretty incredible things in and with our bodies. But it takes like, like you said, ongoing dedication to do uncomfortable, unknown things. Right. But what I really love is the listening practice. I feel like if you're talking about that education gap, you know, white people's listening, I'm lowering my hand below my waist. Like the ability to listen and not feel entitled to fill up the space with their feelings that they're having. Yeah. Well, I do want to give you time to talk about the workshop that you have coming up that you're offering. The name of it is particularly appealing. Is it an untensive or just untensive? Which I, you know, you could get me to go to almost anything with that title. <laughs> so could you tell about this workshop and also tell people where they can find it. This is Kai speaking. If you haven't recognized my voice yet, I'm the one that cusses a lot and gets fiery. That one's me. That's okay. <laughs> I'll just check that little explicit box on. <laughs> I need one of those that I can just carry around with me. T-shirt. Just so that, yeah, that just says, you know, explicit <laughs> box. I will never be in a space and not cuss. It is part of who I am. Sorry, mom. Um, anyway, the untensive is uh, a little bit of a misnomer. It is not not intense. However, what we consider rigor and intensity is something very different. You don't come to the untensive for capital T technique training, meaning if you want to get in those tondu reps, that's not what we do. But what we do do is create a between four and five day, depending on the year, annual experience that is organized around a different embodied theme we've had. Let's see, the first year was We're Not Going Back, which was in 2021, uh, really calling out this, oh, everyone wants to go back to normal. We don't want to go back to normal. Normal is horseshit. We need to go somewhere else. We're not going back. So we organized some of the incredibly brilliant people that we are fortunate enough to know in our lives to come together around this call to not go back and come play with the things that they are doing, that they are curious about, that are about going somewhere else. The second year, our title was Theory without practice ain't shit. It's a quote from Fred Hampton Jr. And that's a real acknowledgement of this desire to intellectualize white supremacy. To go, I've read all the things and I have all the language and therefore I've graduated. That's not how this works. It is an embodied, ongoing, lifelong, multi-generational practice. That's what we're talking about. So we spent another uh, iteration of the intensive inviting more incredible guest artists to go, please invite us into your practice. 
so that we can practice practicing. <laughs> so that's what we did. This year is, uh, oh my goodness, my brain just whited out. Sarah, what's the term, this, the title this year? Less like busy, more like body. Thank you. So that one feels incredibly timely because I know in my own life, I'm feeling the pace of capitalism go into overdrive and moving at that speed means that I cannot be in my own body. I cannot be with other bodies. So what does it mean to recognize that more harm happens, the faster we're all spinning? So this year, we've invited more incredible, brilliant friends and colleagues and people that we love and admire to come and, I'm going to borrow this word from Sarah, to tarry with their bodies and slowness and recognizing that this listening that we're talking about, this slowing down that we're talking about is critical critical to anti racist practice. Because if we are not moving slow enough, if we're not moving, as Adrian Marie Brown says, at the speed of trust, all we're doing is replicating harm. So the intensive this year is Thursday through Sunday. It is led by Sarah and I, but the vast majority of it is actually taught by some extraordinarily brilliant guest artists who we are super excited to get to bring together and learn from ourselves. And it spans, uh, there's three tracks. So in the morning, you can do embodied anti-racist practice with Sarah and I in affinity groups. Then there's a second track that is uh, about pedagogy, so pedagogy for change. So particularly if you're an educator, you know, working in higher ed or any level, really coming in to feel critically about curriculum and what we're valuing and what academic and learning spaces are training us to value. We do a lot of exploding around that in that track. And then the third one is creative worlding, which is for artists of any medium to get to come be immersed in playing with creative practice. So how do you actually make things? How do you make things in an anti-racist way? What the hell does that even mean? That's what we explore and play with in that track. So it's my absolute favorite thing that we do every single year. If I wasn't, didn't have the honor of co-leading it with Sarah, I would be at it every year because I just love it. But yeah, that's a little bit about the intensive. Sarah, what do you want to add? I just want to add a little logistical nugget, which oh, is that it's on Zoom. It's a virtual gathering. And so we've actually had people from all over the world join us. And like Kai said, it happens in these streams. So you can do all day and do all three streams, or you could just do the evening one, or you could just drop in to one class. So there's all these different ways to engage with it through Zoom. Um, Our dates this year are June 15th through the 18th. And registration is open on arcosdance.com slash workshops. And the reason that it is on that incredible website is because our big partner in curation, in funding, maybe not in curation. Honestly, this is an example of us creating community and someone saying, we want to move funds to what you all do. 
I mean, it's just been deeply incredible to work with this organization, Arcos Dance. We couldn't have more supportive partners. So thank you to Arcos. We also get some support from UT Austin, the MFA in dance and social justice. But honestly, it's like Kai and I getting to do our workshop that we do with this embodied anti-racist work and then invite all of the people who inspire and blow our minds to then work with this group. And so that means like this year, again, we get to work with Alice Shepard will be one of our guest artists. Alice is just like cutting edge genius, both as educator and as artist in disability studies, dance making, technology, aerial dancing, production as a mode of activism. I mean, Kai, I'm sure there's more, but that's like my little Alice blurb. Um, so that's an example of the type of just, yeah, world-class folks who like, you know, Kai and I don't have a ton of funding to make this happen, but who believe in what we're doing. Mm. And it's not just Kai and I, I believe in the community that is coming together around this work. So we're just like so deeply grateful that we can get to continue this practice. And, you know, for those of you who are listening, Kai and I want to keep doing the intensive and we are continuing to look for partners. So if this is like, you're like so excited and can't wait to get behind this, our email is info at practiceprogress.org. <laughs> that is perfect. Couple other logistical things to note. It's on Zoom, so all sessions have either auto generated captions, ASL interpretation, or live cart services for accessibility. Mm. Uh, one of the workshops is led by one of my dear, dear, dear longest time friends, Zana Simon and Anton Hunter, who co run the International Deaf Dance Festival and it's actually taught in ASL. Um, and so accessibility is a really important feature of the intensive that we're constantly expanding. The other way that we think about accessibility is financially. It is a sliding scale offering, which feels super core to who Sarah and I are to be able to do that. And also it makes me incredibly proud and excited to go, what is your capacity to support this program whatever your capacity is, come. So yeah, if you can't tell, we kind of love the untouched. <laughs> it sounds so incredible. I'm so glad that we got to talk before so that we can tell people about this. And just thank you both for sharing all of this. Thank you. I don't, I don't really know how to express how amazing this is to hear about this work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pam, for having us. We admire the work that you are doing on this podcast, and we're so grateful to be a part of it. Well, thank you both for making this time. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Art Heals All Wounds.
This conversation with Kai and Sarah was so incredibly powerful, and I'm so grateful to them for sharing their work with Art Heals All Wounds. If you're a teacher or an artist or a person, go to the Practice Progress website to find out more about their upcoming four-day virtual gathering. This summer intensive is from June 15th to 18th and is sliding scale. There are three intertwining streams for the intensive, embodied anti-racist practice, pedagogy for change, and creating worlds. And you can attend all three, just one, or just drop into the programs that you feel you need. I'll put links to their website in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on Kai and Sarah's body-based anti-racist work. I'd also love to hear if you've already started doing any of this work already. You can always reach me at my website, artheelsallwoundspodcast.com. The music you've heard in this podcast is by Ketza and Lobo Loco. This podcast was edited by Eva Hristova. As always, this show was recorded using Squadcast FM. Art Heals All Wounds comes to you from Oakland, California, on unceded territory of the Chokenyo Ohlone people. Thank you.